It was as black as her murderer's soul in the slippery, flat-sided underground water tank, and it was freezing cold. The water here was cooled to only 36 degrees Fahrenheit, or 2 degrees Celsius. The only way out was a metal panel located above where she went into the water. The opening was five feet above the water level. Worst of all, there was no ladder. That opening may as well have been a mile away. There was no way Geetha Angara would have been able to save herself. Geetha was born in Chennai, India in 1961. As a child, she ran through beautiful ancient temples dating back to the 1600s. She also had access to Marina Beach, which is the second largest beach in the world. The city of Chennai itself is large, vibrant, and diverse, and is ranked as the safest city in India. Even though her birthplace is a very popular place for tourists to visit, Geetha wanted out. Her dream was to immigrate to America, but that would take some time. She set her sights on her goals, and along the way she earned a bachelor's and a master's degree in chemistry from Loyola College in Chennai. She was the first woman in the school's history to do so. Not only that, but she was the top student in her class. She was described as a hard worker and a perfectionist. If she was asked to do something and accepted the challenge, everyone knew it would be done correctly. She was smart, strong-willed, and determined. In 1984, when she was 23, she emigrated to the United States. Once there, she earned more master's degrees. Yes, I said degrees with an S and a doctorate in organic chemistry from New York University. She would marry another Indian immigrant who worked in the banking industry, and the newlywed couple would soon have the first of their three children. They settled in Clifton, New Jersey, a suburb of Passaic County. Geetha, ever industrious, began working at Merck, an American multinational pharmaceutical company. She worked there for just over a year before accepting a job at the Passaic Valley Water Commission. Her workplace was a public utility building and water storage area for three cities. It provided 83 million gallons of water per day to 800,000 customers in New Jersey. It was a big operation. That is where Geetha would work diligently for over 12 years. That is, until her untimely death at age 43. On the morning of February 8, 2005, the loving mother of three, her oldest only 19 years old, left home to begin another day as the water facility's senior chemist. This was a position she'd worked toward and earned a year earlier. Her job was to ensure the water was clean and safe, and she took it seriously. When she was promoted to senior chemist, her primary responsibility was to maintain water quality to standards set by the EPA, or the Environmental Protection Agency. She also was tasked to oversee the installation of brand new ozone generators. Ultimately, these new generators would suffer from cracks and other unexpected problems, but we'll come back to that later. A colleague recalled that during the plant's upgrade, Angara was in such a fabulous mood, but other people around her weren't. Her husband agreed and said it was a very exciting time for her. Prior to this, she'd been thinking of quitting, but decided to stay when she got the promotion and the go-ahead to improve the facility. 
Despite her personal satisfaction, Geetha divulged to her husband that some employees in the facility were resentful of her promotion and disagreed with the decision to switch to the ozone cleaning process. At the job front, in the weeks before Geetha's death, her life had become a little bit more difficult. A co-worker blamed her when a pinkish material which seemed to be associated with the new ozone cleaning process was found in the water. Geetha confided in her husband about friction in the workplace and her feelings about a newly hostile atmosphere at work. Nevertheless, she still marched into work, ready to do her job. On that cold Tuesday morning in February, she packed her lunch as usual and headed to work. She arrived at 7.30 a.m. and worked until 9.45, when she had breakfast with her immediate co-workers. One of her co-workers, a subordinate, told her that the plant's filters and clarity sensors needed to be calibrated. She found this to be true. The work group left for another building just before 10 a.m. for a short meeting. Geetha returned to her normal workplace around 10.30. It was at that time she would be last seen alive, carrying a clipboard, a glass beaker, or measuring cup, and a two-way radio. She left her lunch sandwich on her desk, apparently intending to eat it when she returned from a task she'd done many, many times without incident. Several minutes later, the co-worker, who had reminded her of the need to calibrate instruments, went to the lower levels and noticed broken glass on the floor in one area. The glass was swept up and thrown away, and at 11 a.m., the same co-worker was asking other co-workers in the lab if they'd seen Geetha. No one had. Weirdly, her absence would not be otherwise noticed at work until 9.20 p.m. that night, when workers on the night shift saw that her car was still in the parking lot. Another saw her sandwich still sitting on her desk where she'd left it. Her coat was still in the closet. Three of her co-workers were called back from their homes to help search the building for her. Repeated phone calls to her cell phone from her family and co-workers went unanswered. She was missed at home. She had agreed to give her daughter a ride to an afternoon basketball game, but she never showed up. Workers at the plant called her husband to report they couldn't find her there, but it seemed as though she had never left the building. Panic was rising faster than my anxiety level in a crowd, which is pretty damn fast. Just before midnight, Geetha was reported missing to the police. They searched the buildings by land and by air. They even brought in dogs, but it would be more than 12 hours after she'd gone missing before the humans would discover a clue. Underneath where the search teams walked, there were several interconnected water tanks, each one reportedly holding 9 million gallons of purified water, and each was 35 feet deep. These connected tanks only had one exit to dry land, and that was through rectangular four-foot metal access plates. Each plate weighed 50 pounds and was set down into the concrete floor. In one of the lower-level passages, investigators found an access panel that was slightly askew. These panels were typically held down by screws, but in this case, the screws had either been removed or broken. They began draining the tank below the access panel. Geetha's body wasn't there, but what they did find was remnants of a glass beaker and her radio. They drained one tank after another, 
and sent divers down to search for her. Divers, unfortunately, found her body 30 hours after she disappeared. Her corpse had floated from one large tank into another. As news of Geetha's death spread through the surrounding communities, rumors flew. Officials canceled school, and some local businesses temporarily closed. A dead body will generally sink as soon as the air in its lungs is replaced with water. Once submerged, liquids and feces escape the cadaver, which begins to decompose, rendering the surrounding water unhealthy to drink. As a precaution against contamination, the Passaic Valley Water Commission issued a boil order. The citizens of Passaic County were forced to confront an uncomfortable fact. Their safe, dependable, boring water supply was not as secure as they always assumed it was. The investigation was off to a difficult start. There were no cameras on the lower level to record what had happened, and the crime scene had already been contaminated by plant employees, then police officers and firefighters who aided in the search. Her body, which had been immersed in cold, chlorinated water for more than 24 hours, would yield no trace evidence, no DNA, and no fingerprints. But her body would tell a terrible tale. Her autopsy showed deep bruising around her neck, and the medical examiner found more bruising on her waist and one of her elbows. It appeared as though she fought, as someone grabbed her and then choked her into unconsciousness. It also showed that she was alive when she went into the water, and the reported cause of death was drowning. I dip my toes into death by drowning here, specifically cold water drowning. In any temperature drowning, if she was unconscious, she would likely have died in less than 60 seconds. In some instances, unconscious people have drowned by inhaling as little as half a cup of water. If she was conscious when she went into the freezing water, it's likely the blood vessels in her skin began to close, making it harder for blood to flow around her body. Then her heart began working harder, and her blood pressure increased. In the worst case, she may have had a heart attack. But when a person first enters cold water, it's common to have a gasp response. This could have caused her to breathe in the cold water. If she was able to swim, she likely lost dexterity in less than three minutes and would have been exhausted or unconscious in 15 to 30 minutes. In either scenario, if she was killed, the person killing her had time to think and change their minds and save her life. This could have happened when they were choking her unconscious, which takes several minutes, or while she struggled for her life in the cold water beneath their feet. The primary theory was that whoever killed Geetha had incapacitated her first. In some sources, I found there was a suggestion that not only had she been strangled, but she may have also been struck in the head. However, this is not confirmed. Typically, inside the tanks, there is an alarm system that would have gone off when the water level rose due to the added mass of Geetha's body, but the unit wasn't functioning at the time. And as I said earlier, there was no DNA or fingerprints on her body. The glass fragments from the beaker had been disposed of in a way that made them irretrievable. Police knew that although they had a very limited amount of evidence, the small pool of possible suspects was also limited, so their hopes were high. 
The treatment plant was tightly controlled, with only one driveway and a security post where all entrants had to be cleared and monitored via camera to be allowed into the facility. Three sides of the property were fenced off, and the fourth butted up against a river. According to security records, there was no one working at the plant that day that hadn't been cleared. One of the 50 people who had come to work had to have been the person who killed Geetha. The autopsy showed that she had not been sexually assaulted, so that was ruled out as a motive. Interestingly, a TV show called Special Victims Unit aired an episode one year earlier that used the water treatment plant as a backdrop. In the episode, a man was killed and thrown into one of the tanks. At first, police thought maybe this was a copycat killer from that episode, but that seemed very unlikely as only an employee could have killed her. The only other thing they could think of was the animosity that was shown to Geetha by a few of her employees and co-workers. There were two women who were known to have widely disliked Geetha, but no one believed they were capable of killing her over just their dislike of her. According to the officers, the strength required to lift and replace the access panel and to struggle with 5'5 Geetha, who weighed 175 pounds, or 165 centimeters and 79 kilograms for non-American listeners, those numbers led them to believe it was probably a male killer. Not everyone agreed with this sentiment, but added to that theory is the fact that strangling tends to be a male-dominant way to kill. A wonderful listener, Grant P., was kind enough to send me some delicious Java House coffee to help fuel this two-job-holding and podcast-producing mom, and I absolutely loved it, and even had to fight my husband for the last coffee. Now, Java House has become a sponsor, and you get a discount. I like my summer coffee cold, well-balanced, and dark, just like my favorite podcasts. My personal favorite is the Colombian Liquid Cold Brew Pods, holy moly, They're delicious over ice, but they can be served hot. Java House even has a cold brew coffee in a box like boxed wine. It's so tasty and convenient. Check out all their options at javahouse.com, and if you use the code TWISTED10, you'll get 10% off your order. That's a capital T on Twisted, no space, and the number 10. I'll have a link to Java House and the code in the episode description. Thank you for supporting the show's sponsors. There were a few people who didn't like Geetha, but detectives found that many of her co-workers thought she was great. They said that in addition to being devoted to her work and having a cheerful demeanor, she was modest and kind. She preferred her co-workers not to address her as doctor, but simply to call her Geetha. Her job responsibilities didn't include hiring or firing anyone. She was not the one to ultimately decide if someone had a job or not. This led investigators to believe that whatever happened that day must have been a last-minute decision. They believed that the killing wasn't planned and instead had arisen from either an argument or from Geetha witnessing something the killer didn't want anyone to witness. So why would someone murder a respected chemist? Did it have something to do with the quality of the water at the plant? Had the water really and strangely turned a pinkish color the week before the murder, as Geetha had told her husband? And if so, what did that mean? Did she blow a whistle on a colleague? 
Did the expensive new ozone disinfectant system, which had caused headaches for weeks, had some kind of embarrassing problem? Or maybe it was something else, something more simple, like an affair between two co-workers or some other secretive exchange. Tensions were high at the water plant after Geetha died. Workers did their jobs in pairs as a safety precaution, while police kept a close eye on what happened at the plant. Imagine believing someone at your work was a killer, and yet you had to work with them on a daily basis. I'm sure the staff had their own ideas of who the killer might be, and that work gossip was at an all-time high. About a month later, two electricians started arguing about overtime. One threatened to take the other off the grounds and smash his head in. According to police, after the second electrician complained, the first was suspended. In that same month, investigators had narrowed their focus to a group of eight men. But try as they might, they couldn't find a motive as to what would move one of them to kill Geetha. Chief Assistant Prosecutor John Lataraka told the New York Times there was either a very powerful motive out there that someone had kept completely to themselves, or this was simply an unplanned killing and the killer got very lucky. After an entire year, detectives had narrowed the group down to only three suspects, one of whom was the co-worker who had first taken note of Geetha's absence after walking down to the basement. James Wood, the chief detective, noted that a second suspect was, in his opinion, about to confess before retaining counsel and refusing to speak to police further. None of the three had solid alibis, and they all had access to where Geetha's body was dropped into the water. Detective Wood would go on to say this killer isn't smart, just lucky. He asked all three suspects to take a lie detector test, and each one came back with a different response. One passed, one was inconclusive, and one person refused to take the test. Continued interviews after the testing produced no additional information. As the weeks passed, detectives repeatedly interviewed every single one of the plant's 85 employees and obtained DNA samples from 50 of them that worked with her that morning. I found this fact interesting, since they said they weren't able to find any DNA on Geetha's body. Why gather DNA samples? Divers dove once more through all the tanks, hoping to see if they'd missed anything, but nothing was found, and by the middle of 2006, no new leads emerged and the case went cold. There were two other theories that police considered as an alternative to co-workers killing Geetha. The first was a connection to an unsolved 1968 murder. This would have occurred over 30 years before Geetha's murder. This killing also happened in the same jurisdiction and bore some similarities to this case. Joan Freeman was a hard-working 22-year-old woman who was working overtime on a Saturday, August 31, 1968. She was performing her secretarial job for an internationally known pharmaceutical firm called Hoffman LaRoche. She was in the office to record employee hours from time cards. Her body was found in a second-floor medical library in Building 34, which had a security gate. At 5.30 p.m., she was struck on her head from behind with a wooden mallet that was found at the scene. She was also struck repeatedly around the face. 
Her throat was then slashed and cut all the way to the depth of her spine. Several hours after she was killed, a guard making a routine sweep of the building was the one to find her. What police found most strange about this case was that Joan didn't work in Building 34 where her body was found. Her cause of death was a skull fracture from the mallet. There were conflicting reports as to whether or not she was sexually assaulted. Some sources say that she was found clothed and there was no evidence pointing to penetrative rape. Over the next few weeks, detectives interviewed and performed background checks on more than 300 people. This included all the guards who were on duty that day. Because of the restricted access to the work campus, detectives were certain it was a co-worker, but the wooden mallet yielded no fingerprints and the weapon used to cut her throat was never found. Like Geetha's case, detectives pored over Joan's personal life but couldn't find anything that would give rise to a motive. They were unable to narrow the pool of 300 down to any specific suspects. The county prosecutor told a journalist from the Star-Ledger that the murders were similar in nature. Two women murdered in a secure facility, and although detectives studied both cases to see if anyone who worked at Jones' office later worked for the water plant, not surprisingly, they found no connection. The second theory is that Geetha was not murdered. In May 2006, over a year after Geetha's death, it was reported that some of the investigators had begun to consider the possibility that her drowning was, in fact, an accident. They contacted a forensic pathologist from Scotland named Derek Pounder. He was one of the few experts in the field of drownings, especially those that occur in cold water. In his research, he found that in a small percent of drownings, bruising on the neck and petechia in the eyes closely mimics injuries otherwise seen as strong indicators of strangulation. The thing is, though, he was never able to examine Geetha's body because it had been cremated shortly after death in accordance with Hindu funerary traditions. He also didn't study any of Geetha's records from the autopsy. The county's chief homicide detective retired in 2006 after working on Geetha's case for 18 months. That same year, Geetha's family, basing their decisions on the idea of accidental death, filed a wrongful death suit against the water plant and a number of individually named supervisors and lab technicians, claiming that the water plant, which had a history of accidents involving extremely high levels of chlorine, open and unguarded water tanks, dirty workspaces, a lack of internal security measures, and a record of 55 health and safety violations was a dangerous place to work, and that the plant operatives knew about it and failed to correct it. Three years after Geetha's death, retired Detective Wood stated that he had come to believe that the case was an accident, a result of negligence rather than of malice. He thought that perhaps the metal plate had been removed in order to test the water. This would have occurred before Geetha came into the room and she stepped into the open hole. An unnamed co-worker told the New York Post that on the day of Geetha's death, the state had ordered follow-up testing as a result of the pinkish discoloration. Normally, the necessary sample would be collected by machines along the pathway, but one supervisor was very old school and still liked to test the water directly from the tank, and that required removing the plate. 
When Geetha came into the dimly lit room, she didn't see it and fell in. After which, the person who should have replaced the plate did so in a hurry, never admitting to taking the plate off or putting it back, because they knew they'd be held accountable for Geetha's death. This was ultimately the opinion of the same detective who believed he had one of the three suspects ready to admit what they knew before lawyering up. If the accident theory is true, and the hole was covered out of fear, I believe the person should come forward and give Geetha's family peace of mind. They are still searching for answers. In 2015, Geetha's daughter disputed the idea that it was an accident. She said her mother was exceedingly cautious, and it was unlikely that she would have failed to see a dark, wide-open hole in the floor. At the time of her death, plant workers said they'd never seen one of the panels left open either, and it would have been one heck of a coincidence for her to have strangulation-type marks on her neck and in her eyes, and for that panel to close on its own after she supposedly fell to her death. I come back once again to it being strange that Geetha's co-workers failed to notice her absence for the rest of their workday. While the accident theory had been taken into consideration, the prosecutor's office still stands by the original conclusion that Geetha's death was a homicide. In addition, five pathologists reviewed Geetha's autopsy report, and all five concluded that her death was a homicide. So... As things stand, the question remains, who killed Dr. Geetha Angara? Only two people know the answer to that, and one can't speak for herself, and the other won't. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review. Follow Twisted Travel and True Crime on social media, and if you have a case suggestion or want to reach out for any reason at all, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at twistedtravelandtruecrime at gmail.com. I would like to take a minute to thank a couple of people for their kind reviews. The first is C. Sinton, who gave me five stars and says, love your podcasts. Short and sweet. That's awesome. Thank you very much. I'd also like to thank Nicole Morris, who wrote me a second review saying great job and that she heard uh, my shout out at the last episode and said that I thought she'd only rated four stars, but it's a five star show. So <laughs> thank you very much, Nicole. I appreciate you reaching out. I'd also like to thank you listeners who are taking the time to uh, recommend the podcast in social media and to your friends. I know there are many of you out there and I truly appreciate it. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, I'd like to wish you fair winds following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. What are we waiting for?